0: Okay, I'm gonna name a few movies, see if you can figure out the common thread among them Alice in Wonderland, The Land Before Time, The Rescuers Down Under, An American Tale, and Five Will Goes West. Any guesses? These are all animated movies, for one, that I hated as a kid. Each movie involves a child either getting lost from home or separated from their parents or both. And even at a young age, I couldn't stomach this. It made me anxious. It made me feel sad. I didn't want to think about that kind of thing happening because on some level, I knew it could be real. Like, why would we make cartoons for children about this? Never did I imagine being faced with this reality as an adult, so up close and personal in America of all countries. Just like all of you, this is haunting for me to consider. It is horrific to think about. And I think about it all the time, little children all alone, some too young to even know how to identify their parents. And I think about me as a parent and what it might feel like for me to be separated from my child. The trauma, the treatment, the lack of nurture we've been reading about is unspeakable. And this isn't fiction, you guys. It's not a movie. This is really happening right now on our border in our state. While I've mostly observed shared outrage over this crisis, I have also heard the following opinions expressed multiple times. One, this has been going on for years and no one blamed the previous administration for anything. Two, the media is hyping this up. It's not as bad as they are saying. Three, Well, what do you expect? These people are criminals. If a U.S. citizen breaks the law, they're taken to jail and separated from their family. If people don't want this to happen, they shouldn't break the law. They should enter our country the right way. Four, what about all the unborn babies? Why isn't anyone speaking for them right now? Of course, none of these comments are helpful because none of them move us toward actually getting these migrant children back with their families. But I bring them up because of the questions we are looking at today, which essentially boil down to the relationship between faith and politics. This border crisis is a great example of a topic that is both social and political. It is the perfect example of an issue that even the most apathetic citizens can't ignore And it is certainly something the church and people of faith aren't able to overlook. And yet, this problem, like it or not, is deeply political. Human lives are suffering as a result of political systems. And so if we are going to get involved, if we are going to take action, if the church is going to try and help in some tangible way, then we are almost certainly going to need to jump into this circus that is our country's current political arena. And so the question is, what is our part to play in situations like this? How do we navigate these waters in light of the fact that we are followers of Jesus And in general, what is the Christian's role in politics? And what is the church's role? And two of the specific questions from our congregation on this topic, instead of choosing sides in the fractious culture wars, can't the church be something other? And how do we balance our faith and involvement in American democracy as we pursue justice? Now, the quick answers are yes and Jesus, but I'll continue on with the sermon if that's okay. Our church is actually Baptist by tradition and affiliation, which often comes as a surprise to many, but most people also aren't aware of the historic distinctives that define the Baptist origins, which has always been our primary reason for identifying with this label. Specifically, the Baptists were trailblazers for religious liberty, both in America and beyond, but first dating back to Englishman Thomas Helwes. As a co-founder of the Baptist denomination with John Smythe in the 17th century, Helwes appealed to the king for religious freedom for all, no one excluded, and this was an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Baptists were persecuted for their belief and religious liberty. So this distinctive of religious liberty has been around for centuries, and specifically in our country, it is legally protected in part by the concept of the separation of church and state. Now, we understand that while this phrasing is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, we cherish the idea of separation of church and state as a simple way of explaining our First Amendment right which states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Because of this small clause in the Bill of Rights, we are guaranteed freedom from religion and freedom of religion, meaning religion cannot be forced upon us by the government and we are also free to exercise our own religious convictions without government interference. This is relevant to us for, you know, the obvious reasons being that we're people of faith, but also how we interpret this ultimately impacts our civic convictions and therefore our actions or lack of actions. So because of misunderstanding regarding these concepts, we see people of faith all over the spectrum, from believing that the United States is a Christian nation, which it's not, this is untrue legally and constitutionally, all the way to total civic apathy operating under the assumption that the separation of church and state somehow frees us up from political responsibility but the truth is if we are following jesus if we are reading carefully if we are watching his life and death play out in the gospels then we know we have to know that Jesus was deeply political. Jesus was political, and his ministry had political implications. And he didn't shy away from this. He faced it head-on, turned broken systems on their heads, and, oh yeah, he was ultimately killed for it. We are called to a similar kind of political engagement as Jesus for the sake of society, meaning people, human lives, I am not suggesting that church ought to be partisan. I am talking about being political. If we want to follow Jesus, if we want to live like Jesus lived, and if we want to do the work of Jesus, the work of ushering the kingdom of God into our world now, then we must be consistent in our following of Christ. Part of this consistency. Part of this following is paying attention to the radical way Jesus walked in this world, the trailblazing way in which he engaged with the margins of society, and understanding that his example should compel us to play our own part as citizens today, to be political in our own contexts. Jesus was political in the way he cared for people, meaning that his way of loving defied societal constructs and threatened power structures. He was making a political statement with his radically inclusive love. This is because Jesus was concerned primarily with salvation, meaning he wanted people to know life, but he didn't wait for eternity instead he performed miracle after miracle healing people bringing people back from the dead so they could live fully in the present jesus cared about people's circumstances now and his entire ministry was about going around and doing something about it as jesus followers we must care about what jesus cared about we must also be about salvation Our concern for the dignity of every human life should always take precedence. Love should take precedence over fear, over reputation, sometimes even over logic. As citizens of God's kingdom, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be concerned for the greater good. Because when you are a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of what is good. Not necessarily what is great. Jesus himself says as much in today's reading. When a dispute arises among the disciples as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I love the placement of this story in Luke. It comes immediately after the institution of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. Meaning that this intimate moment with Jesus' friends right before all the events of the passion are set into motion, this beautiful event which we in churches all over the world mark with a ritual every single week called communion, this holy moment at some point turned into a battle of the egos in which the very followers of Christ became totally distracted by the allure of power. That is a strong metaphor for us today. And Jesus is like, whoa, friends, seriously? This is not how it's supposed to be. Like, this is not what my life has reflected. And he says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over the people, but not so with you, The greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like one who serves. Who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Well, guess what, Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is telling his people that while political systems may value power, and in fact their very existence is based on maintaining power, his followers are held to a different standard, a totally other paradigm. Jesus is literally saying to be great means nothing to him. He flips the definition of what is great on its head. Could this mean that part of our call as Christians is to reclaim and redefine the word great? Could it mean an altogether surrender of the desire to even want greatness or power in the traditional sense? Because even now, our political leaders want power. Expect that. Expect them to want to be great. Expect us as humans to want power and to want to win too. But also understand that this is not the way of Jesus. In his humility and gentleness and meekness he served, saying the first will be last and the last will be first. This is why his way is not the winner's way. And that's okay. For Jesus being great meant being least. It meant serving over leading and leading by serving, and that's what he did. He traveled around from place to place, and he was a healer of lives and of hearts and therefore souls. He went directly to the margins of society to show love and total acceptance to the least of these so that in their present moment, they would experience life. Salvation in a way that had never, ever been offered to them by anyone else, certainly not by the powers that be. And following him means we do the same as best we can right here in our own humble lives. Too often we allow social issues, meaning the plight of the immigrant, the refugee, the LGBTQ community, the people of color, women, the elderly, children, the disabled, the poor, the abused, the mentally sick and addicted, the vulnerable. You guys, we allow our mass combined efforts to care for the vulnerable, to get hijacked by partisan politics, to become agendas used to keep power systems in place, to become issues associated with specific political parties. But based on the life of Jesus, we have an obligation to care for the least of this, regardless of parties and sides, meaning these issues, and I put those in quotation marks because these are people. These issues are our issues. Anything having to do with the dignity and care of human lives is a part of the church's collective responsibility, period. What this means is that each of us have a part to play in the political arena. But in the spirit of doing things the way Jesus did them, how we operate shouldn't look like the norm. So when we look to the issues our society faces, we look at names and faces and stories, and we extend empathy and grace and love just like Jesus did, regardless of what side it might be associated with. Because we know we aren't about any camp or any side, or any category. We are following another way, an other way. We are surrendering to our God-given conviction to radically love above all else, and we are letting that love determine how we vote and how we engage in other civic affairs. Doing it this way is not popular, you guys. For one thing, it takes way more intention and work. It is the road less traveled, to be sure, and in Jesus' case, this is the way that got him killed. Jesus was a radical, dissenting, prophetic voice in his time. He challenged old paradigms, broken systems, power structures, and anything else that got in the way of love. Just like other prophets of the Bible, Jesus was the voice of God amidst the world's chaos and brokenness, except he took it a step further and became the very presence of God on earth by becoming human and walking among us. Because Jesus did this, because Jesus lived and died and rose again, and because we actively choose to follow him, each one of us inherits the role of prophet as well. At Pentecost, this deal was sealed. Our gift of spirit says so. Acts 2.17, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What do you think this means? Because it means something, right? What if it meant exactly what scripture has already revealed the role of prophet to mean? What if it meant to actually be that radical, dissenting, uncomfortable, often unpopular voice of God in the world? What if it meant actually living out the difficult reminder, our call to let go of the illusion of power, to unclench our fists, to give up our crazed obsession with winning? What if it meant renaming and reclaiming words like great in light of our very good God it makes me think of that hymn turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace Perhaps the writer of this hymn meant for us to forget about the here and now, if even only for a moment. I don't know her intentions. I know it has been tempting for others to take those words and words like them and apply a sense of escapism to our theology. Today, let's let these words speak comfort and sustenance amidst a room full of hearts, very likely weighed down by compassion fatigue. Today, let's allow these words to remind us that while loving people, loving the world can be a great burden, Jesus has already promised to carry that burden for us. But let us also take these words as a challenge Challenge that when we turn to Jesus, look to Jesus, we are committing to a divine gaze that will inevitably cause us to see exactly what Jesus sees. The implications being that we will be brought down back to the muck of this world and we will most certainly be compelled to act now. Because it's not just what Jesus would do, it's what Jesus did. This is the role of the prophet, being a voice of truth above the fray, but still engaging, not giving up on society. It is speaking out and acting as the very hands and feet of Jesus all the while not letting sides, and the fear they would elicit guide us. We engage in our democracy because it is our duty as responsible citizens, but we turn our eyes upon Jesus while we do it. And instead of Falling prey to the allure of greatness and power and winning, we remember there is another way. Sure enough, it takes work, sifting through all the sides, all the arguing, all the division, the various perspectives before we find out what it is we each really care about, what our conscience, the spirit of God in each of us beckons us to stand for. It takes work, but we hunker down and we do it because we know it's not just politics. It's not just society. It's people, human lives, children of God. And as followers of Jesus, as prophets of God in this chaotic world, we know our role is one that leads people to life and nothing else. This is hard stuff, but we do it. We are tired, but we do it. We are weary, but we freaking do it, you guys. And when you need some extra energy or motivation or inspiration, look. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face, and I promise you the things of Earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Amen.